Hello, this is Ken Root. Welcome to my new podcast series, People in the Know. It's brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. I've worn their hearing instruments for almost 20 years. They are good people who sell state-of-the-art hearing aids and give great customer service. For a free hearing screening, go to iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020. That's 877-955-4020. This episode of People in the Know goes back in our agricultural history to a day when fears in the cattle industry became the top news story in the country and around the world. It was December 23, 2003, and the news was that a case of mad cow disease had been confirmed in the United States. The reaction was that countries around the world that imported beef from the U.S. immediately blocked shipments, the value of livestock plummeted, and the industry was in chaos. It was as much of a crisis of information as it was a crisis of a disease, one that could spread from animal to animal and even to humans. I'm joined by two guests who were very much a part of sorting out the facts and getting government and livestock producers back on track. And my guests are Elisa Harrison and Peter Shin. Elisa was at that time working as the communications director for the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture in Washington, D.C., and that job uh, sets really, truly on the heartbeat of that very large government agency. And Peter was the news manager for the National Association of Farm Broadcasters, and he and I were working together in the office of NAFB in Kansas City. So the reliving of these events here may give us some insight into what we can do today, uh, what we learned uh, then, and uh, the continued threat to the uh, agricultural industry of foreign animal diseases coming in. So, Elisa, thank you for being with us. And uh, give us an overview, if you wouldn't mind, of what happened at the time, and I'm sure you can relive it frame by frame, that you had a confirmation of BSE in the United States. Yeah, it was um, you know December 23rd. It was probably about 11 a.m. in the morning, and I got a call from a public, public affairs um, staffer at APHIS, the Animal Plant Health Inspection Service, and saying that they had a presumptive positive of BSE. And, you know, I was shocked not because, you know, it's a crisis, but because of all the steps that the industry had taken for 20 years to try to prevent this. So in November of 2001, we had released the 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 Harvard Risk Assessment that basically showed there was zero risk in the U.S. of of getting mad catastrophes. We actually started our efforts uh, really preparing for uh, an attack, a terrorist attack on the food supply, because that was certainly after 9-11, and we uh, started putting systems in place at the department to make, make sure we could respond to a contamination at the food supply, all of the, the types of things that uh, the government found in the caves of Al-Qaeda. And so that was really where our focus was. So I was I was really stunned. Um, and so after that, I went down to the secretary's office, uh, she gathered the sub-cabinet, 
Uh, we talked through it. Remember, it was presumptive positive, and the plan at USDA was to not announce it until it was confirmed. And so talking with the scientists and the experts at SIS and FSIS to try to determine what we knew about the cow, um, I remember the secretary asking them how how they felt, um, how positive this might be. And they they felt that it was a good chance that it was positive. So she made the decision to announce it that day. And she did that because there was some rumbling in the market. There, people were calling us. They thought that there had been another case of mad cow found in Canada. And so there was just a lot of misinformation out there. And again, this is way before social media. So we did have an hour or two to try to um, uh, put put off the announcement. So we made the, the decision at like 3, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 3, 3.30 in the afternoon to announce it. We had two hours to put together the press conference, write the secretary's remarks, um, get it approved, you know, all the, all the steps that you have to go through. Alerted the White House, um, alerted the media about that we had an announcement and without telling them what it was. And so at 5.30, um, the secretary was getting ready to walk out into the conference room, into our news briefing room. And she made, uh, she was looking at her remarks. She wanted to change a few things. So she was using scissors and tape to move paragraphs around and to make edits there. And she walked in. And right as she was walking in on the, the ticker tape on CNN, it was saying that there was a case of bad cow disease. So it was very hard to keep it, you know, in, a, in an agency of 100,000 people uh, under wraps. But we were able to, to announce it that day. And I'm glad we did, because I think being able to hear it from the government first um, actually helped to put a little bit of confidence um, with the consumers and the safety of beef, um, and it's that started, uh, you know, ten days straight of constant, you know, holding briefings for briefings for the reporters, um, you know, getting uh, not not just for the U.S. media, but for media around the country. So, you know, it was a bad time for personal lives, but it was actually a great time for an issue like that because Congress was out of town. Um, a lot of people were out of, you know, the whole. I felt like there was no one at the department because everyone had gone home for Christmas. So we were able to focus just on this issue, um, you know, 150 percent. And uh, then, of course, when um, uh, January turned around, we, we got into all the questions about the cow and was it a downer and all of the additional regulatory steps that the government took um, uh, to try to prevent uh, this from ever becoming the epidemic that we saw in Europe. Pete Chin, let me come to you. Elisa said uh... It was an excellent time. Uh, I can't believe anybody ever said that. It, that takes 20 years to say that uh, <laughs> excellent time for a crisis like this to develop. But you were sitting there reading the news and keeping the pulse of everything and had a strong background at that time. What went through your head and what did you do, as you remember it, when you got the first news of BSE? Well, it wasn't a great time for me because I was planning to celebrate Christmas with my family. Typically, the 23rd of December is a pretty slow agricultural news period. But this was obviously the most important story that anybody had had in a long, long time, maybe ever, certainly in terms of the beef cattle markets. So one simply had to work through it because getting that information out was so vital to our constituencies which were primarily not consumer-oriented, at least not in those days. Our constituencies were primarily uh, agricultural producers, farmers and ranchers. And naturally, they wanted to know just how 
Apple, which was going to impact their markets, whether or not they were ever going to be able to export beef again, how long certain bans on beef exports were going to last. Would there be cattle trade between the United States and Canada? There were a million questions and all of them needed to be answered, at least at at least an attempt needed to be made to get those answers. So we worked, not just me, but many different agricultural journalists, and of course, regular journalists as well, uh, to try and get those answers to the American people. And of course, for us to get those answers for farmers and ranchers. I think it's interesting where we were sitting in uh, transition of technology at that moment. The internet was new. People in agriculture were just venturing out to try to find information. Those people who had websites were rudimentary by today's standards in how they were putting information out. And your agency, uh, Elisa, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, uh, was dealing with that. But also you were, as you pointed out, not in the midst of uh, the social media, which could spread so much disinformation so rapidly what was your goal initially on getting the confirmation of the cow itself that, uh, as I recall, wound up being a cow in the state of Washington who'd been imported from Canada, but I'm not sure we got that immediately. How did that go? Well, again, we were uh, trying to get um, the facts um, out as quickly as we could and confirm them before we announced them. And I had all, you know, uh, as we had prepared to try to respond to a terrorist attack to the food supply, I had sat down with some reporters who covered USDA and asked them, um, you know, what, how they wanted to hear from us, um, what was the best way to get information. And, one, and during those meetings, I promised them that we would provide the information the moment that we knew it to be true. And so um, I remember it was Christmas Day that, that we got, um, you know, protocol. Uh, told us to send that sample to Weybridge, to Weybridge, England, which is kind of the reference lab for BSC, to confirm that presumptive um, uh, positive. And so they they actually expedited it, and I got the word on Christmas Day that um, it was, they had confirmed the presumptive positive. And so I sat there, um, you know, with uh, very slow internet and a, a decrepit fax machine um, at the place where I was was um, and tried to send that information out so that everyone would know that it was that it, it wasn't a, a negative. And one of the other things that reporters had told me at the time was to um, send any information out at any time of the day uh, to all bureaus around the world, because there was always going to be one bureau open and someone at the news desk. So that actually helped us on that Christmas day because we had gathered all of the, the contact information for all the wire services, all the major media around the world, each time zone, so that, you know, we were able to find someone at a news desk that could put that out on the wire. And if I remember correctly, it was um, it was a Reuters reporter in Australia that actually put that announcement out on the wire um, that evening. And so, you know, that, that I thought we were being so smart by doing that, but, you know, when you, we just did not have uh, the kind of quick um, information distribution systems that we have today. That's, you know, I've talked about the difference in 20 years as far as communicating with many of my colleagues in the communication field. And we've all talked about that. I, I think it the the quickness and 
the social media and the conspiracy theorists, theories that arise would have really put a damper on our ability to, to get the facts out quickly because we would have been chasing a lot of rumors. And there's already a lot of rumors. People doubted if it was a downer. People doubted that it really was imported from, you know, Washington State. So it it we were trying to track down all of those details and realize that there are some paperwork and some systems that needed to be shored up at USDA because we weren't able to um, uh, immediately glean that information. And also there was um, the ability of traceability and animal ID um, was also an issue. You know, we had at the 20 years ago, we had some systems in place, but it wasn't certainly where it is today. And it's not mandatory, of course, across the, the um, industry. So we had to give information out the minute that we proved it to be true. Um, and I think reporters and the consumers appreciated that because we weren't holding it. We weren't, you know, uh, you know, if it came out at you know, seven o'clock at night, um, we send it out at seven o'clock at night. So that was really the, the, the most um, effective tool that we had in our, our toolbox. Peter Shen, you just went on immediate uh, alert and started uh, doing your job extremely well. In fact, I was amazed at how intensively you covered this for weeks. But what was it like for you dealing with the technology of the moment to gain information and then get that disseminated out to all the 200 plus farm broadcasters and thousands of outlets across the country? It was a lot of work, Ken. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, as you recall, I was a staff of one feeding a large number of agricultural broadcasters and networks. I think I'm I don't can't even recall if at that time I had an assistant. You were That's you a were a one man band in course, I'm an agricultural broadcaster, but I was the executive director and I needed to be hands off uh, and let you work and give you the capabilities to do so. Lisa, here's an aside with Peter. Uh, Peter was so diligent that one time I threatened to lock his office so he couldn't get into it um, <laughs> because he would never go home. And uh, um, and I don't know how many days it was, Pete, that you just kept up finding information, putting it out. You told me a number of stories that you confirmed and and produced in the next few days after that. And it was at least double digits, if not more. Well, uh, part of that had to do with the quality of the information that USDA was putting out uh, because they were very transparent. They were releasing information anytime they had new information. And all of that, I felt, was, you know, in those days, in the absence of social media, to your earlier point, services like the National Farm Broadcast Service were absolutely vital in disseminating that information, factual information, information that was objective, information that wasn't based on conspiracies or rumors, but was based on reliable sources, truly reliable sources. You had to have journalists, people who were trained in journalism, who could sort out the, the facts from the speculation and then provide that to a, a larger number of other journalists and broadcasters who could disseminate it themselves. That's what it was like when journalism was a thing. And um, and I think ultimately, although it was a little slower in the information getting out, when I say a little slower, I'm talking about a matter of hours, not days. 
uh, I think that the quality of the information and therefore the outcomes tended to be much better. My view is that the seed with which information is currently disseminated has not improved quality as a rule. Uh, and so it makes it very difficult for the average consumer of information to know what's true and false. This particular incident, this BSE incident that we're talking about, was a time, a transitional time in American culture, when large news organizations still had a dominant role to play in filtering out disinformation from useful information. Alisa, let me go back to some of the things that happened then for our audience to be able to kind of put it back in perspective. BSE, or mad cow disease, had been uh, going on in Britain for a period of time. And um, I'd kind of like for you to bring us up to date of what they were doing and how it got out of their country and got into the United States and um, maybe what mistakes were made at that time. Well, I think at the time, it, I think it was 1996 when it was really um, um, on on the world news about all the different cases of mad cow disease that they had um, in England. And um, at one point, um, they were able to determine that it was transmitted through ruminant-derived protein, which is code for um, saying that feed that actually had um, animal products in it. And so if it was a contaminated cow that was uh, processed into this feed, then that prion um, could um, transfer from cow to cow. And so there, before they were able to determine that, there were hundreds of thousands of cows um, that died um, in, um, in the UK because of that, and in Europe, because of course it went from UK um, into other European countries. Then I think where it really became um, a real issue is when they uh, did determine that it could jump from cows to humans. Um, if humans ate um, some of the organs that, that were more, more prominent to have um, this protein in it. And the Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which is the human uh, 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 derivative of that disease. So that really created the scare. And at the time, I don't know if you remember this, there was also a lot of foot and mouth disease going on in Europe. So there's uh, cows were just all over the place. And so that was really when the U.S. first uh, started learning about mad cow disease. And when I say the U.S., the consumer. And so we've been talking to the U.S., to the consumer about mad cow disease for many years, 20 years. And there were some steps that were taken um, in place, uh, first voluntarily by the industry, by banning that ruminant-derived protein feeding in the United States, which Eventually, FDA made that mandatory, but since it was such a small part of the feeding of the industry at that time, it was something that the industry voluntarily did uh, because they wanted to, to take those steps in order to prevent it from ever happening in the U.S. And so I think the way they've traced it back, there were some live animals that were imported, uh, exported from the U.K. to Canada. Um, if I recall correctly. And so then again, this was, they were populating, um, you know, the cohorts and there was offspring of those animals in Canada. And so Canada had found its first case six months prior to ours. And then of course the Canadian cow was imported into the U.S. into Washington state. So that's kind of the track that it took. Um, and I think uh, the banning of the ruminant derived protein 
the um, banning the export of live animals and products into the U.S. Um, as well really did help us from, um, you know, uh, not having the epidemic that uh, we saw in Europe. And again, the Harvard risk assessment, you know, looked at it and said that the, the chances of it happening in the U.S. were very rare. And, um, so I think the, the steps that we took, you know, prevented that. But then, of course, after we had our first case, I think there are 11 or 12 cases that were found after that. And so it appears that whatever was in the system at the time has worked its way out um, because there hasn't been a case in quite a while, although there can be spontaneous um, cases and um, that there have been a few of those as well. So that's the best of my recollection, Ken. I mean, it, there was a time when I could have written a, you know, a college chapter on it. Oh, that, that fits with uh, with everything that I remember from the time as it developed. And I'll come to Peter in just a minute, but I wanted to ask you, since you came from the livestock industry, uh, since you had worked for the beef cattle industry uh, association for years before you came to USDA, surely you had some people that you were feeling very dear to you that were suffering, and I wonder how much you emotionally got into this because you really knew the people who were going to suffer the, the worst economic losses, if not reputation losses, on their farms and ranches. Yeah, you're exactly right. It was, it was a very personal experience for me, and also I had several of my colleagues at USDA come um, the industry, Al Moore, who was the chief of staff, Chuck Lambert, who was the deputy um, undersecretary at marketing regulatory services. So that's, you know, and also, um, you know, there are several other people that, that had been criticized for there are too many beef industry people over at USDA. Um, but it actually ended up being very helpful because we were all very familiar with the, um, with the disease. We had been working, you know, there's a partnership between government and industry on any animal disease. And that's why I think we've been very successful in the U.S. So we've been working with USDA for the 20 years prior to that, um, working on prevention, working on plans on how we would respond. So I actually spell BSE, bovine spongiform encephalopathy. So maybe a lot of people who weren't from the beef industry, it might have been a little bit harder. But we had an instinct and we knew that we had to quickly get the information out in order to not only maintain the confidence of um, the U.S. consumer, um, but try to stabilize that market as best we could. But of course, there's only so much that you can do because countries did close off our our. Um, imports into their country, which is what we did when other countries had done it. So um, there was uh, that was something that we had to endure. And I know the secretary and, and uh, J.B. Penn and Chuck Lambert and others worked very, very, very hard to try to get this market, especially Japan, opened up as quickly as they could. You know, this was an issue that was also felt very strongly, you know, within the White House and with the president himself. President Bush knew um, the the significance and the impact of this to an industry that was huge in his state. But he also knew that it was a global, there was a diplomacy around this issue because uh, the countries, it was so such a huge issue in Japan and in Europe and a lot of 
our trading partners that there were, this was on the agenda at a lot of those um, those bilateral meetings and certainly the multilateral meetings. And so everyone within, you know, certainly the secretary on down and the president um, understood the significance of this. But you're right, there were um, I have a, a lot of fond memories and a lot of close friends um, to this day uh, that had been, um, you know, bee producers and it had generational um, ranches that were impacted by this. And, you know, when you back up even a couple years earlier, when Oprah did the case of um, when she did a show about mad cow disease, I actually booked that show. Um, so it was um, was another major incident in this whole story, um, trying to get a woman who was, you know, most trusted in the U.S. at the time uh, to understand um, that the U.S. industry was uh, doing all that they could to prevent this. Um, but her her words, and I remember it clearly to this day when she said that stops me cold from never eating another hamburger, the markets, you know, reacted and a lot of people were heard. And of course, there were that um, uh, dealt from that. So you're right. It was personal to me, and that's why it was it was important to me, and certainly to the secretary and all my beef colleagues um, to get this right in their response. Peter Shen, in your diligent work at the moment, as uh, BSE was announced on that 23rd of December and stole your Christmas, if not a lot of other people's, what avenues do you recall exploring, and what uh, revelations did you find uh, over the course of the next few weeks? The risk to consumers was exceptionally low. And I thought that that needed to be com communicated. I mean, we're talking about, at the time, one beef animal out of over 100 million that are processed in the, in the United States. And oh, by the way, that particular beef animal had been caught by our surveillance system. So uh, it seemed to me that it was very important to communicate the message that the U.S. screening and surveillance system for BSE had been effective. And in fact, the risk to consumers was very low. But the other thing that I remember as being very important was trying to find out what is the real term impact going to be on the markets and ultimately the livelihoods of the farmers and ranchers who are going to be impacted by this incident. And then also just is this one thing or is this start of many things? And I think very quickly it became clear that this was a relatively isolated incident and that although it could be anticipated that more such isolated incidents may occur, we did have as such a BSE problem. It was a problem, but it wasn't anything along the lines of what had happened in Europe in the 90s. And so that is, I recall, the initial information that I gathered and what I tried to present was facts, you know, nothing that, uh, and the facts were, while potentially disturbing to some, on the whole, uh, in balance, the most important thing that I could help other broadcasters communicate, because really that was my role, was to provide information for other broadcasters to use. And the main important thing to me is that other broadcasters would have information that would, A, uh, communicate the proper dimensions of the issue, both to consumers and to agricultural producers, and B, that that information be of a type that 
could be useful in putting the issue in perspective for anybody who had an interest in it. Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. Taylor, are there widely used medications that can negatively impact our hearing? Great question, and yes, there are. There are over 200 prescribed or over-the-counter medications that can attribute to hearing loss. And, you know, when you're looking, when we're talking about, you know, medications, the average person over the age of seven or over the age of 55, excuse me, 72% of people over the age of uh, 55 take at least one drug and two thirds of all drug reaction, adverse drug reactions occur over the age of 60. So you're talking almost three quarters of the you know population over 55 take at least one drug or one medication. You know, we're talking simple drugs from an aspirin regimen. An aspirin regimen, and we're not talking baby aspirin, we're talking regular size aspirin. If you take an aspirin regimen um, five days a week or more, you have an increased risk of hearing loss by 26%. Um, some of the big ones are diuretics. So people that have uh, high blood pressure, kidney disease, um, like the myosin group, you know, erythromycin, vancomycin, that whole myosin group um, can attribute to hearing loss. Um, hydrocodone. Um, you know, um, Oxycontin, you know, um, Rush Limbaugh is the famous one for that because he, you know, got addicted to the Oxycontin and that caused his hearing loss. Then he had to get a cochlear implant. So, you know, and, and he was very honest at, you know, toward the end about what, you know, what caused that, um, chemotherapy drugs. So if anyone has gone through chemotherapy, chemotherapy wreaks havoc, not only on your body, but on your hearing as well. Um, you know, the little blue pill, little blue pill uh, can attribute to hearing loss. So there are, you know, many different, uh, you know, medications, whether they're over the counter prescribed um, that can attribute to hearing loss. So the best thing to do is, is, you know, get with your doctor and the pharmacist to find out what the side effects are. If there are other medications maybe where certain, um, certain side effects are less with one versus another. And it's just having that open dialogue you know, with your with your providers to really understand are there you know ramifications for the medications I'm taking, and sometimes there's just you know there there's no other choice but to take the medication. Just understanding um, that it can attribute to hearing loss, and and it's something you need to monitor. Thank you, Taylor. Schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing. You can reach them at eight seven seven nine five five forty twenty or online at iowahearing.com. My guests are Alisa Harrison and Peter Shin. We're reliving the events from 20 years ago that followed the confirmation of BSE or mad cow disease in the United States and the work of the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the agricultural news media to provide credible information to allow the livestock industry to evaluate the threat answer scientific questions, and assure consumers that beef was safe to eat. One aside as we come back here is that uh, we were at the time, Elisa, trying to figure out if farmers were going to websites and seeking information. And in the spring of that year following, of uh, 2004, we went to the Soybean Association meeting, we went to the cotton meetings, and we went to the cattlemen's meeting and we were surveying farmer ranchers as they came through the doors and asking them, how many websites have you gone to in the last month? 
And the soybean people said, oh, two or three. And the cotton people said one or two. But the average of beef producers was 17. And to me, that indicated they were in search of information that they weren't getting from the traditional sources to the point that they were you know, talking to each other and saying, hey, if you go to this website, you can find this out or that out. And I think that that was really, and I wonder, uh, Elisa, if you have spotted that as really a beginning of people turning to the internet to get news. It was very um, critical for us. You know, as, as someone who spent her career trying to get information out to a particular audience, you do rely on the news media on this particular issue, you know, I have to give a huge shout out to the farm broadcasters because that was probably the most efficient way for us to get information out to producers. But as you, you know, the minute right after we announced the um, the first case on the weird, we did a briefing every single day with Dr. Primarily Dr. Ron DeHaven, who was head of APHIS and who was the chief veterinarian for the country, who I think everyone agrees was a wonderful communicator. And so we recorded that every day. And of course, we had people covering it live every day. We did that straight for like 10 days. We did every, you know, an hour briefing every day. And of course, we recorded that and we put that on the USDA website. So if I recall, analytics at the time were, again, because this was such a global issue that people would go back to that website to to listen to those briefings. We had 100,000 people between December 23rd and December 31st, go to our website and listen to his briefings. And so to me, that was that was just, um, it, it really brought home the fact that, you know, this was a worldwide story. And we were able to look at where people, you know, what their IP address was and where they came from. And that was really the first time in my career that I realized the scope of information and how far it could go. But uh, that website and the the electronic, um, uh, other electronic um, vehicles such as radio, I think was just key, um, was critical to us. Could you tell me in a couple of minutes what you came away from this with? I know you've written for publications and even wrote a chapter in a book since that time about um, crisis communications. And I wonder what you would observe for us. Well, I think first and foremost, um, don't be afraid to talk about hard issues with the public. I mean, if you can talk to the American public about a, a disease, a brain eating, wasting disease that you can possibly get from eating beef, you can really talk to them about anything. The public is smart. And if you have the facts and you are transparent with them, they have a lot of lead way. Um, the second thing is, is to start uh, working on prevention way before the incident actually occurs. December 23rd was not the first time the American public or the industry had heard about mad cow disease. And we've been talking to the public about it, even, you know, uh, things as big as when Oprah did her show and the lawsuit, it gave us an opportunity to talk to reporters about that. And then also, um, as an industry, from an industry perspective, do it takes from a preventive standpoint once those those um those hazards are identified and that the spots where you can make a difference because that not only helped with BSE, but it will certainly help if we ever get FM, uh, foot and mouth disease in the U.S. You've got to make sure that your house is in order um, on your 
farms and ranches that you have the biosecurity measures in place so that you can contain um, a, a disease that is far more contagious than BSE was. But transparency, honesty, and providing the information as soon as you have it, I think were some of the, the lessons that proved to be uh, effective then, and I think they would prove effective today, 20 years later. Well, Lisa, I can't thank you enough from the perspective that you had at that moment uh, and what you give today to be on with us and talk to us about it. Uh, we didn't talk much about your Secretary of Agriculture. Um, Ms. Veneman uh, did her job well, and others did following that, uh, including even in the Johans era, when there were the spontaneous cases that popped up that scared people again. And Peter, thank you for the work you did then. Uh, it was great. You went on to another career in the military following that, and uh, I hope you're doing well today. Thanks for listening to People in the Know. I'm on the hunt for guests to interview. If you have suggestions, contact me at this email address, kenroot at gmail.com. K-E-N-R-O-O-T at gmail.com. Have a great week.